And for all the people, I just want to say for anybody who's brand new and you've never been to the center before, and all the people who are downstairs, I think you can hear me pretty well. Um, <clears throat> although you won't be able to see what I'm holding up, but we have a schedule and it's by the door. And um, if you want to pick it up and you're brand new, please feel free to do that. And we also have an upcoming event sheet, which is also by the door. So for anybody who's never been here and you want to know what's happening at the center, please feel free to pick it up and take it with you. <clears throat> so we are just so happy and fortunate and honored to have Sharon Salzberg here tonight to give a talk and to um, sign her book and sell her book. I was hoping I'd have a copy right up here to hold up, but maybe you could hold up the galley for a minute. Here it is. <laughs> it's Faith. <laughs> so thank you, Sharon. It's a good thing because my mindfulness was shot. So thank you so much for coming and being a part of this. We really appreciate it. And on behalf of the whole community, thank you. <clears throat> so just like every other Wednesday night, of course, I have some announcements to make. So please bear with the announcements. <clears throat> In order to keep um, everything going smoothly today and to have mindfulness occurring and to preserve that mindfulness, we ask that in the upper and lower meditation hall that no one brings any food or drinks. If you need to have some, please just step outside and have it. <clears throat> but please don't bring it into the hall. We also ask you to stay for Sharon's entire um, talk and question and answer period. And then when it gets to the book signing, if you'd like to leave, please leave then. But please, just to stay for the whole talk. As you know, as you came in tonight, the talk is $5. And your $5 actually really supports the ongoing Wednesday night Dharma series. So we really appreciate any support that you can give us. So thank you. We also invite you to come on Wednesday nights to the cleaning, which is from 5.30 to 6.30. Now, this is a great opportunity, believe it or not, to meet all these people who are here. You can do some mindfulness cleaning, and you can meet new friends, and maybe if you laugh. So we invite you, if you weren't here tonight, to come any other Wednesday night and help to serve the center as well. Thank you. <clears throat> this Saturday, we're actually having a gardening day, and what this is, another opportunity for a community event to have people come and work in the garden. Jeff, who works here on staff, he coordinates that, and I've been to a few, and it's actually kind of fun. So if you're interested, please come. And there is a light breakfast, so maybe that'll entice someone. <clears throat> Next Wednesday, August 14th, Larry Rosenberg will be speaking here. He'll be doing a discussion on practice. So as you all know, that tonight after the talk, there will be the book signing. And I will come back up and tell you how that's going to happen. But So stay in your seats at the end of this so I can tell you. <clears throat> One last thing I just wanted to say for all of you who are interested in um, doing a day-long event with Sharon. She's going to be here in December, so you can check. It's going to be on faith. And it's a benefit for the center and for the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. So you can check the schedule. And at the end of the talk and discussion, when it gets to the book signing, we will invite all the people downstairs to come on up. So just so you know that. I just wanted to say that. OK. <clears throat> they can all meet. <laughs> they can all meet. <clears throat> so I'd like to just um, invite Matthew Daniel, who's a member of our community, to come up and to introduce Sharon to all of you. Matthew. 
Thank you. Um, it's wonderful. It's quite an honor to be able to introduce someone um, who's had such a profound effect on the bringing of the teachings of the Buddha to the West as, and a personal, actually, effect on my own life as um, Sharon Salzberg. So I just want to share a few uh, anecdotes and things that might uh, give you some insights you might not <laughs> otherwise get. <laughs> No, first you should know that um, Sharon is the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, and the new uh, Forest Refuge. Uh, that's it's major contribution. And uh, I served on staff at IMS for a number of years and had the good fortune to work with Sharon in, in some board contexts and, and committees. And many times in committee meetings, uh, there's a lot of high-mindedness that goes on with spiritual types, but not necessarily a lot of practicality. So Sharon brought a, a tremendous uh, sort of discerning sword to many situations. Oftentimes there were logger jams in meetings, and Sharon would, Sharon would just kick back and sort of be in the background. And then when everything seemed most bottled up, she would just come out with some very choice words that would move things along in a very skillful and smooth way. So that's one of the memories I have from, from her. Um, another one is... Um, having the fortune to work with her doing uh, intensive loving-kindness meditation at Barry um, over a number of months over the past few years. And just in one sense, it's just been a tremendous gift to work with someone that can, can hold and transmit the power of the possibility of freedom and uh, uh, sort of self-love and acceptance that, that Sharon can, can help people tap in themselves and help me. And, uh, and on long retreats sometimes, well... Even short retreats, maybe one day or even a sit, sometimes there's tremendous suffering that comes up. And I remember as I'd come into uh, interviews sometimes, it seemed the greater my suffering was, the greater my inner anguish, the more equanimous and sort of easeful and humorous Sharon would be. So I didn't often know sometimes when I came into an interview where I'd be at and the, the amount of brightness and joy that she emanated. If she was really, really there, I feel like, okay, you must be in tough shape, Matthew. <laughs> Um, and so just myself and countless others, um, Sharon, is, I, I don't see how she stayed so fresh doing so many interviews and so many Dharma talks over so many years. When did you start teaching? How old were you? How old was I? Yeah. <laughs> 21. Sharon started when she's 21. I won't ask how old you are now, but <laughs> I don't need to know. There's <laughs> As a matter of fact. <laughs> but... Uh, the joy and freshness that she brings to the teachings is amazing, and that shows in her, her books as well. Um, she's written three solo books, is it? Uh, th oh, loving, loving Kindness? This is yeah, this is the third one, right. Okay, well, so Loving Kindness, um, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness, and that was a bestseller. Um, a friend I had that, that uh, worked with Vietnam veterans, um, a lot of them had post-traumatic stress disorder, she was asking me what, what could help her, and I recommended the book, and she said it was, she came back to me and said it's been transforming for herself and for her work. And so this is, countless people have been touched through, through the writings. The second book is A Heart as Wide as the World. It just shows this quality of inclusiveness of all experience. And then the third, which I'm very excited, and I think we all are, to hear about tonight, is faith. Uh, trusting your own deepest experience. So with that, I'd like to give a very heartfelt uh, welcome to Sharon from myself and from the, the overall community. So thank you very much, Sharon. Thank you. Thank you. It's really beautiful. Well, that, that was really beautiful. Thank you. 
For a moment, I thought you were going to tell an anecdote about when you and I were doing that Hatha Yoga weekend together, and we were in adjoining mats, but you didn't, so I won't. No. Matthew said, was that the one where you went beyond what you thought you could possibly do? And I said, no, <laughs> that wasn't the one. <laughs> yeah, we'll skip that one. <laughs> but I do want to thank you. It was a very beautiful introduction. And I want to thank everybody here at CIMC who have worked quite hard, who opened their space for this evening and um, have worked quite hard to, to make it happen. And, of course, thank all of you for coming, those I can see and those I can't see. <laughs> but we can feel you, <laughs> even if we can't see you. Um, why don't we start, if you can get comfortable, just by sitting for a few minutes. I know some of you have sat for 45 minutes and uh, you may be kind of squished, but if you can get comfortable, it'll really just be a couple of minutes to allow our energy to arrive more fully There's a sense, there's a way of practicing meditation that is a way of simply gathering our energy. And just as we have gathered here physically to come together, we can gather our energy. We might experience ourselves normally as scattered or fragmented. Our energy is thrown into the past or thrown into the future. But we actually can learn to shepherd it back, to bring it together, to experience the wholeness of our being. So just for these next few minutes, if you can sit, close your eyes, unless you're accustomed to meditating with your eyes open, or unless you feel very, very sleepy, in which case it's a good idea to open your eyes. And just let your attention settle on the feeling of the in and out breath, wherever you feel it most distinctly the movement of air at the nostrils or the rising, falling movement of the chest or the abdomen without straining, without trying to have a better breath or a perfect breath. See if you can feel just one breath. You don't have to worry about what's already gone by or anticipate even the very next breath. Just this one. And whenever you find your attention wandering, whether it's gone to the past, gone to the future, it doesn't matter. As soon as you become aware that you're no longer feeling the breath, you're no longer connected, See if in that moment you can practice gentleness and kindness toward yourself. Simply let go without judgment and begin again. This is a way of deeply understanding, almost on a cellular level, that no matter what happens, we can always begin again. So even if you find, if you find that your attention wanders a great deal, it's okay the art of meditation, the critical moment, happens in the moment we realize we've been distracted. Just to gently let go, come back, feel the breath. 
One of the things that I love about meditation practice is that I find that the big life lessons come in tiny little packages in meditation. So just that exercise we did, which is like a foundation practice, I have found can have a transforming effect in one's life. To be able to let go and begin again. To be able to do that with some compassion rather than disparaging oneself and harshly judging oneself. That's a big thing. What we just practiced was the understanding that no matter what mistake we might make, no matter what deviation we might have gone on from our chosen course, we can always start again. That nothing is irreparably ruined. That there's always a sense of of possibility, of renewal. Sometimes talking about meditation, it sounds so simple. But the actual power it has, because in these itsy-bitsy little packages come some very big values, the power it has is really quite enormous. And it was really through my exploration of meditation practice and what I was learning through that that I came to want to write a book on faith, which is a question I'm often asked. Actually, I've been working on the book. I had been working on the book since it's past tense, now it's done. Um, I had been working on the book for about five years. My earliest notes were from 1997. And in those days, people met the topic with a kind of amazement and puzzlement or disparagement. People would say, why are you writing a book on faith? And often I asked myself the same question because it was, it was at times so difficult to do. In fact, I just had a, a radio interview this afternoon that my publisher arranged and the, the guy interviewing me said kind of brightly, he said, I bet this was a really easy book to write. And I said, I said what would you like to bet? <laughs> and then he said, it wasn't? And I said, what did we bet? (laughs) What did I just win? (laughs) I had a a conversation with Ram Dass, a a spiritual leader who had a uh, massive stroke in 1999. This conversation was about 10 months or so after his stroke. And we were sitting on his porch in California, and he asked me how my book on faith was going. And I said, it's very hard. First I said, I've never had to go so deep inside myself before. Then I caught myself and added, actually that's not completely true, but I've never had to go so deeply inside myself before and bring out the words. And Ram Dass in a a poignant statement said, that's how I am every day now, having had the stroke. But somehow the issue of faith, even way back when, five years ago, was very compelling for me. 
because I looked at my own life and the experiences I'd had, and I looked at my friends and my meditation students, and I felt that there was something, there was some quality that had kept me, keeps us going through really difficult situations, that keeps us going through uncertainty, through anxiety, that allows us to admit we're stepping into the unknown without doing our usual uh, configurations of trying to control every single thing in our lives so that we have a feeling of, of security, however false. There was something that admitted that everything changed all the time and that gave me, gave us the courage to, to step right into the center of that change and see what might happen. And more than anything, I would say that there was a quality that allowed me, and that I have witnessed in other people, it allowed me to step off the sidelines of life and move directly to a sense of being deeply, intimately in touch with life and all of its possibilities. And that quality was faith. So even though at times it was really difficult and people were... um, almost scornful sometimes, like, what do you want to write a book about that for? I felt this tremendous urge inside to try to, as I put it now, I tried to reclaim the word. Because so many times people hear the word and they think it means a blind adherence to dogma or a kind of stupid surrender to a system or to a teacher so that you don't question anything, you don't try to understand for yourself. And yet I felt the true meaning of faith was this vital, alive, supportive quality that was so liberating and so encouraging, so inspiring, that I wanted us to be able to use the word in a way that, that wasn't laden with all of those associations. The subtitle, as Matthew said, is Trusting Your Own Deepest Experience. But for a while I was tempted to call it The Journey from Lucy to Lala. And that is, uh, early on in the book, fairly early on in the book, I talk about this time when I and some friends went to a house on the Cape, actually, that somebody rented for us to do a retreat. And when I went into the bedroom that was designated as my bedroom, I saw that someone had left a comic strip on the desk from the Peanuts comic strip. And in the first frame... Lucy, the character Lucy, is talking to Charlie Brown, and she says, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. (laughs) Then in the second frame, Charlie Brown looks at her and says, well, what in the world can I do about that? (laughs) In the third and final frame, Lucy says to him, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. (laughs) So somehow, whenever I was doing walking meditation in that room, I would just walk by the desk and my eye would fall on that one line. The problem with you is that you're you. Which struck a, a very strong chord. That's the Lucy voice. Coming to trust one's own deepest experience doesn't mean a kind of self-reliance that, that's isolating, you know, where we're, we're cutting ourselves off from others. I think 
when we go to the deepest level within, what we find is, is a commonality with others. We find our interconnectedness with others. So by going to that level, wherein our potential for awareness, for love, for connection resides, what we find is a very big world that we are a part of, that we are inextricably linked to. So it's not just that the Lucy voice keeps us from forging ahead with confidence in, in some task. It really actually cuts us off from the truth of how connected we all are and how we need to take care of one another. We need to respond to one another. We need to listen to one another. Now I will tell the yoga story <laughs> in Matthew's honor. That voice of Lucy um, that says we're incapable, that says we, we can't trust ourselves, will arise. It's a conditioned force in most of our minds. And I find that a great deal of the skill of meditation practice is learning how to see all those various thoughts and feelings that come up as habitual forces in the mind, gently let them go, and go on. So there was one time I was at a yoga conference at Kripalu, and I was slated to give a talk in the afternoon, just after lunch. I'd gone there because my own yoga teacher was teaching there, and so I went to his class in the morning, and we were doing the asanas, the postures, and we came to the place where he asked everybody to do a wheel posture, where you lie on your back, you put your hands up kind of near your ears, and somehow <laughs> you get up into the air, so your, your back forms this bow, and I had never, ever been able to do that pose, and never expected to do that pose, so I wasn't really ambitious or, you know, in a terrible state about it. And he said, okay, let's do the wheel. And of course I couldn't get up, but I was used to that. And then uh, he came over to me and he said, did you get up? And I said, no, I never get up, you know. And he said, so he helped me up, you know. So then I got up and then I started looking at my watch and I thought, well, you know, I've got to go prepare my talk. I hope he finishes. And, you know, he's definitely not going to make us do another wheel. I mean, he's, go he's running late, you know. And then he said, now we're going to do it again. And I thought, oh, no, you know. So I lied down. I'm never going to get up. doesn't matter. You know, I lied down, put my hands behind my ears. And then he said, now I want you to let go of all self-limiting ideas about yourself. And I laughed, and I went up. <laughs> and I was so startled, I said out loud, I said, oh, my God, I'm up. <laughs> and then the very next thought that came up in my mind was, you're never going to be able to do this again. But because I had been preparing my talk and I had intended to use the story I just told about Lucy and Charlie Brown in the cartoon, that was kind of in my mind. So when the thought came, you're never going to be able to do this again, I heard myself saying, just chill out, Lucy. <laughs> and that was it. That's the, the force of the meditative training. Lucy comes, we let her go. So that's for you, Matthew. <laughs> the journey from Lucy to Lala <laughs> begins with often that, that sense of, of being um, incapable, being withdrawn from life, feeling excluded from a sense of possibility. 
And the journey, as I depict my own personal journey in the book, has to do with connection. The traditional translation of the word sada in Pali or Sanskrit, the Buddhist languages, what is normally translated as faith literally means to place your heart upon, to offer your heart. And that act, and it's an action, it's a verb, not a commodity we have or don't have or that we need to condemn ourselves for, for not having the right kind or not having enough. Faith is a verb. It's an action of the heart. It's based on first knowing we have a heart. It's based on knowing that the offering of our hearts is a very great gift, not to be done lightly or or without discernment. It's knowing how incredibly precious that offering is because delivered with our heart, which means our interest, our, our enthusiasm, is delivered our life's energy. It means many things, that act of offering our heart. It means we have to get close enough to a situation so that we're not standing removed and withdrawn and cynical. It means that we need to participate. We need to link up. We need to come close. We need to connect. We need to connect to a vision of possibility, no matter what situation we find ourselves in whether it's physical pain, a relationship difficulty, an uncertain future, an insecure day, whatever it might be, within it there is constant change because everything in life changes all of the time. There's always movement, there's always flow. Once we see change in a situation, we will see that, that glimmer of possibility, how there's always opening somewhere, somehow. The situation may not get all better, but we can be better. Our response, our heart, our compassion, our love, our wisdom can always be affected, can always be transformed. There's porousness to life. There's fluidity to life. Once we see change, we see possibility, and that is faith. It's that response of the heart to that opening, knowing that nothing is shut down, nothing is closed, nothing is rigid, nothing's cut off, when we can really see clearly. So unlike most meanings of faith that have to do with stupidity (laughs) or um, the association people have with the meaning of faith, There's a quality of faith that's very, very intelligent that is based on seeing clearly. It's based on seeing our own potential quite clearly, our potential for love, our potential for compassion, our potential for transformation. It's based on seeing a person quite clearly, a situation quite clearly, so that we feel empowered not to just accept blindly what is being told us, but to question, to doubt, to wonder, to scrutinize, to investigate, to explore all of which states don't weaken faith, but actually strengthen faith. When they're done from a place within, a feeling we have both the right and the ability to know the truth for ourselves. Because I'm often asked now about doubt, and whether I don't think that doubt is necessarily the opposite of faith, you know, I thought about that a lot, and I really think that doubt, 
the right kind of doubt that I just talked about, is not at all the opposite of faith. I think the real opposite of faith is despair. Because faith has that function of linking us up to a greater whole, of opening our lives to a bigger picture, of connecting us, not only within, but to all of life itself. When we are cut off, when we are isolated, when we feel disconnected, when we feel utterly alone, when we feel utterly unseen, that's despair. I once was uh, teaching a retreat in Barry at our center, and I, I was asleep at night, and I had a dream that I was teaching a retreat in Barry, which was not that exciting. <laughs> but the exciting part of the dream was that um, in the course of teaching, as, as Matthew mentioned, we have interviews with students. They're called interviews. They're really just check-ins about the person's practice. And so in the dream, I was having an interview with someone, and... In the dream, this person asked me, why do we love people? And I heard myself respond by saying, because they recognize us. When we feel seen, we feel recognized, we feel known, there is that response of love. And this is very akin to faith. With the, the vision of faith, our world opens up and we recognize deeper truths wherever we go. We're not so, so caught in the, the daily circumstance, the challenge that we might find ourselves in. There's a bigger picture available to us. And so as I said, when I started, the word was extremely controversial. It probably still is, actually. Um, but as our, you know, our world has gotten more uncertain and a lot scarier for a lot of people, life in some ways has gotten a lot more difficult. The word faith is taking on a new allure, actually, as we try to find a surer footing in the midst of what is sometimes a great deal of anxiety. And again, it's not a kind of faith that, that's kind of precious and private and that, that we can enjoy while feeling separate from all other beings. It's more faith that actually points us directly to our connection to all beings in a, a much bigger picture of life. And we all have faith of some kind. If we didn't have faith, we wouldn't get up in the morning. We'd still be in bed. But where we offer our hearts to what, with what degree of discernment, with what degree of self-respect, that's really the question. I had a conversation with Stephen Batchelor. Some of you may know him. He's a Buddhist scholar and a wonderful teacher who'd written several books on doubt. He wrote a book called Buddhism Without Beliefs, for example. And we were sharing a keynote address at, um, poignantly enough, at the Marriott Hotel at the World Trade Center last summer. And the keynote was supposed to be on faith and doubt. So I said to Stephen, I said, hey, Stephen, how about let's not be typecast? How about if I do doubt and you do faith? <laughs> and he said, he's, he's very British, he said, that makes me rather uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll do faith and you do doubt. <laughs> and we had this conversation you know, in public, this is our discussion, our keynote, and he said to me, why are you calling it faith? You know, why not just call it trust? 
No one's going to have a reaction. <laughs> you know, everyone's going to want it. <laughs> It'll be really appealing. If you call the quality or the book faith, it's going to elicit all of this reaction from people as they go through all of those, those memories perhaps, if they've had a bad experience or um, fears, if they, they think it might mean surrendering something vital to their well-being and, and their, their intelligence, their, their critical intelligence. He said, just call it trust. And I said, you know, I can agree with that point of view, but there's something in me that just wants to call it faith. <laughs> you know, because there's a power there. And I do think it's a power that we can, we can claim for ourselves. But it's difficult. It's a difficult exploration. It's a difficult conversation sometimes to have. Yet I do believe we all have faith, inherently, innately to our being, and that we have the possibility of nurturing that, of bringing it forth, of having it support us, and especially having it support us in these very difficult times. I had a, a conversation once, a dialogue with a psychiatrist friend in New York City. Um, we were talking about what we considered or what might be considered to be the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship. Now I think about that and I think, why are we talking about that? <laughs> you know, it's like, how can one ever say? But anyway, that's what we were talking about. <laughs> and... And we went through these different kinds of methodology and um, systems and approaches. And, and at one point he said to me, you know, this was, this was the way he phrased it. He said, if you put any good psychotherapist up against the wall, they'd be forced to admit that the single most healing element in the relationship is love. And while I certainly resonated with that and agreed with it quite wholeheartedly, I had this experience, I'm sure you've had it too, where you know those times when you just hear yourself blurt these words out and you think, where'd that come from? So what I heard myself blurt out was, well, for all we know, the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship is the fact that the patient showed up for their appointment. And I actually meant it upon reflection that we get out of bed, we show up, we take a risk, we're daring, we're going to try. We're understanding that tomorrow doesn't have to look like today, that today doesn't have to be defined by yesterday, that there's movement, there's possibility, there's opening. All of that is faith. So my book launched on Monday. That was the first day that I, just a couple of days ago, that it was available, and it happened to be my birthday. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. Uh, and I was, I was speaking in New York City, and the psychiatrist happened to be there. So I told the story, and then he came up to me afterwards when I was signing books, and he said, you're wrong, it's love. <laughs> so when I signed his book, I signed, it's love, with a big exclamation point. And then I had a birthday party, which he was at, and then he came up to me later in the evening and he said, no, you're right, it is faith. <laughs> so I've been thinking about it for hours. <laughs> and I said, well, give me back the book. <laughs> I'll re-sign it. I mean, it's not that it's one thing, of course, you know, and that's why, upon reflection, it was a very strange conversation to be having at all. But there is something so enormous about the fact 
that we go forward, that we are willing to take a risk, that we believe somehow things can change, that we don't fall into hopelessness, that we don't fall into despair, and if we do, that we pick ourselves up and we move on. It's an amazing thing. That is the, the power of faith. There are many ways that faith gets confused. Um, in, in the Buddhist psychology, when different qualities are talked about, often, like loving kindness, for example, or compassion, they're often talked about in terms of their near enemies, and those are qualities that are very close to the particular state, like loving kindness or compassion, one might be yearning for or practicing. They're very close, but they're not the same. They're so close that it's easy to get confused. It's easy for them to masquerade as the very quality we, we are aiming for. And yet they're not at all the same. So even though faith is not particularly talked about in this light in the Buddhist psychology, I extrapolated and uh, came to feel that the near enemy of faith, well, there are two, actually. One is hope, and that's not hope in the sense of if you don't have it, you're going to be hopeless. It's a very specific way that hope is used in uh, Buddhism, which really means attachment. It means expectation. It, it's akin to fear. And so there's a cycle of hope and fear and hope and fear and hope and fear that happens. That's the way that faith is often misused. Like, I am sure tomorrow it's all going to be better. You know, Santa Claus is going to bring me what I want. And that the rainbow is going to have that pot of gold. And, and it's got to be, because otherwise I'll be devastated. That particular meaning of hope means that our, our sense of, of joy, of uh, what can bring us happiness gets entirely encapsulated in one experience. We forget the strength we might genuinely have if something else happens. We forget the qualities we can bring forth if we don't get what we want. We forget that we may not get what we want and it may be okay. Everything gets fixated, is the word. And it kind of reminds me of... Um, This Tibetan teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, who was one of the first Tibetan teachers of our generation to come to the West, once did this exercise with his students. He took a large white piece of paper and he drew in the middle of it a kind of floppy V-shaped object. Then he held it up in front of the class and he said, okay, what's this a picture of? And apparently, everyone in the class responded by saying, that's a picture of a bird. Then Trungpa Rinpoche said, no, it's not. He said, that's a picture of the sky with a bird flying through it. You know, when our hope, our quality of hope is that fixated quality, our view gets very, very, very small. All we see is that bird. But when we can open up and admit we don't know, then things can really expand. That's the sky with a bird flying through it. So I call hope one of the near enemies of faith. And then the other is the common sense of what faith might mean, which is belief. Belief as a, a concept, a structural overlay, 
a perception of what is going to come, what things mean. And here there's a, an example that's used in some Buddhist schools about, uh, it's kind of a similar example actually to the one I just did, of people looking at the sky through a straw and saying, wow, what a view, you know, it's really big up there. And then getting very attached to their particular straw and comparing their straw to other people's and saying, well, mine is better, it's bigger, or it's got a better design on it, you know, it's, it's very far out, this straw, and yours is not good. And then one day, through friendship or inspiration or courage, somehow we put down the straw and we look nakedly, without preconception, without any idea, at the sky. And then we go, ooh, <laughs> that's really big. The act of putting down the straw, of admitting we don't know, that's the act of faith. So to actually discern the nature of the quality is in itself quite a journey. We already have faith, but can we learn to honor the gift of our hearts? Can we learn to clearly and closely examine where we're putting our energy, where we're giving our, our life force over to? Can we learn to be supported and sustained by that gift rather than feeling we've lost something by our, our sharing, our participation, our connection? Those really are the questions. I think I'll close and then take some questions. I'll close with Lala, who's the epilogue of the book. She's the end of the journey. And I think this I'll actually read. So now you know the end of the book. <laughs> it's like the end of the mystery. It's based on the conclusion of the journey being that to offer one's heart in faith means recognizing that our hearts, in fact, are worth something. They're worth a great deal. And that we ourselves and our, our deepest and truest value are, are worthy beings. I start with a quotation from this woman Lala, or Lalded, who was a 14th century mystic from Kashmir. She wrote, At the end of a crazy moon night, the love of God rose. I said, It's me, Lala. As if renewing her acquaintance with an old friend, Lala addresses her God casually, sweetly, intimately. Enchanted, I felt inspired by her winsome response, her calm expectation of being remembered. Hi, you remember me, don't you? Lala offers herself completely, no reticence due to a feeling of a lack of self-worth, no questioning of her absolute right to be there, face to face with the vastness of her ultimate truth. Without any doubt, the heart she brings is worthy. For a long time after discovering this poem, it was my touchstone. I wanted to be like Lala, close up to the truth of life. One day, faced with an urgent turning point in my life, that favorite line arose in my mind, transformed into a phrase that launched me 
from admiration of Lala to standing in her place. It was no longer it's me Lala, but it's me Sharon. It's me Sharon right up against the question of what it means to be alive and having to someday die. It's me Sharon, part of a constantly changing reality with all surety falling away. It's me, Sharon, not even one slight step removed from my own potential for love and awareness and my ability to realize them. It's me, Sharon, no longer appreciating from a distance Lala's upfront, textured, vibrant connection to her truth, but directly face to face with my own. Like Lala, we all have that absolute right to reach out without holding back toward what we care about more than anything. Whether we describe the recipient as God or a profound sense of indestructible love or the dream of a kinder world, it is in the act of offering our heart in faith that something in us transforms. What may have been merely a remote abstraction flames into life. It's me, Lala, becomes it's me, whoever we are. Proclaiming that we no longer stand on the sidelines but are leaping directly into the center of our lives, our truth, our full potential. No one can take that leap for us, and no one has to. This is our journey of faith. So do you have any questions or anything you'd like to talk about? You up here. Yeah. I knew you were going to say Actually, the question was, can I do those yoga wheels? And Matthew asked me that once. Kind of, and kind of not. <laughs> Um, but I know that someday <laughs> I will do it perfectly. <laughs> it's better. It's better than it was. Uh, the question was, might I uh, translate faith or, or call faith um, the ever-present power to reach within for healing and self-transformation? Um, I think yes, very much so. But um, as a corollary to that, uh, I believe very strongly that that healing and self-transformation links us to the bigger world. You know, that it's, it's not a kind of self-absorbed uh, kind of healing, you know, where we, we sit content with being so much better than we were and, and uh, not feeling so anxious or, or alarmed or, or um, angry or whatever it might have been. But that the deeper we go inside and the more we heal, the more we recognize that we are part, all of us, of this, this great connected world. I was once teaching with a friend and colleague of mine, Bob Thurman. Some of you may know him. He's a professor of Buddhism at Columbia. And he gave this example, which is very Bob and very New York. He said, imagine you're in a subway car and with all these other people and a bunch of Martians come and they zap the subway car so that you're going to be stuck there together forever. And he said, what do you do? <laughs> you know, if someone is hungry, you feed them. If somebody's freaked out, you try to comfort them because you're going to be there together forever. And that, in fact, I believe is the truth of things, that we are inextricably joined. And so 
um, the more we heal and the more we transform, I think the more this becomes our vision of life. Yeah. Did you have more? Okay. Um, one of the traditional contrasts to faith is reason. Mm-hmm. The comment was that one of the traditional contrasts to faith is reason, and could I say something about reason? Well, that's sort of what I meant by doubt, the positive kind of doubt. Um, I don't think it's antithetical to faith because as, at least in the Buddhist tradition, um, faith is an evolutionary process. It's something that develops and shifts and changes form. We start with what is known as bright faith, and this is the kind of faith I think that is mostly considered different than a state of reason. Um, Bright faith is almost like a kind of intoxication. It's an exhilaration that we may feel in the presence of a person, a teacher, a mentor. We may feel it even in a place that we find sacred. We may feel it in a community. We may feel it in a doctrine, a set of ideas that lifts us up out of our normal day-to-day life. And it's like this huge expansion, this this sense of exhilaration and enchantment. it's called, it's like falling in love. You know, it's, it's that state of infatuation. And in Buddhism, it's acknowledged that this is a stage of faith, and it's often an important stage of faith. I mean, I look back to my first meditation experiences, which were utterly miserable, you know, physically, emotionally. But there was something, I had never felt happier at the same time because I was so in love with the Dharma, with the teachings, with my teachers, with you know, being in India. It was like all, it was the setting that helped me launch um, into making that effort. So while this stage is considered a beginning, it's also considered very immature, because if we stay there, then we're simply dependent on externals for that sense of being alive. You know, one teacher may tell us something one day that inspires us and another teacher may tell us something different, a, a different day that inspires us and the, the faith is not grounded in our own experience. To get to the next stage of faith, which is called verified faith, we need to put things into practice. We need to test them. And that reason is part of that. Um, we need to examine, we need to explore, we need to um, question everything and we have the right to do that. That's the way that this ebullient but immature faith can become grounded and centered in our own understanding. And so this is why the Buddha is so famous for having said, don't believe anything just because I say it. And don't believe anything because an elder has said it. Don't believe anything because you've read it in a sacred text. He said, put it into practice. Put it into practice and see for yourself. Is it true? And part of putting it into practice is that um, level of discernment, you know, of reason. So that becomes the second level of faith, which is verified faith. And then uh, the third level of faith is when we have verified a truth, a situation so deeply that we, we do know it from within. It's like in our bones, you know, and that is called unwavering faith or abiding faith. But um, the movement is really through that claiming for ourselves the right to understand and checking everything out. Absolutely. Yeah. It seems like uh, one of the 
Uh, the comment was that in uh, many Western traditions, faith is something future-oriented, something that is going to happen and you're, or you're going to get. And uh, what I'm talking about is a faith that's really very present. And I think that's correct. I don't know about the first part because I'm not really versed in you know that many Western traditions. And uh, but but certainly the faith I'm expressing, which I believe um, is is not limited to the Buddha's understanding, but is certainly grounded in the Buddha's understanding, you know, which is the tradition that I know, um, is very much in the present. And that's why it's not a state of denial of what is. You know, it's not building a future on trying to ignore what's actually happening now. Um, it's a full opening and connection to what's happening right now and being able to move through it, you know, and, and within it. Uh, to be responding from the fullness of our heart with all the the awareness and the love that we are actually capable of. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is you. But I just want, was checking with Maddie how we're doing with time. Okay. Uh-huh. The question was, what about when you learn, when you hear something that you already know to be true, that, you, that fits with what you know to be true, and do you actually have to practice it, or is that already verified faith? Well, I think it's always good to practice it, you know, just to check it out, but I think that was my response to hearing the Buddha's teaching for the first time. Uh, I was a college student when I first heard in a philosophy class what the Buddha taught, and then certainly when I went to India, I had that sense, I've known this. You know, I've half known this, or I've more, f- more than half known this, but I've never known the words exactly to say it. And so that was the feeling of having come home. And I think that's the best feeling to have, because the truth is inside of us. You know, the, um, the purpose of teachers and teachings is to bring it out from within us, not to impart it to us. And so that's the best feeling to have, but there's nothing wrong with practicing it, you know, at the same time. I have a feeling we might have to stop. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this is how it's going to work. <laughs> First I'll tell you how it's going to go. And anybody who's not interested in, you know, buying a book, if you would leave the hall through that door, that'd be great. And anyone who's interested, what we're going to ask you to do is, I'm sure you've already figured out what this table's here for. So um, we're going to ask people to... I know we filled in the aisles, so people who are sitting in the aisles, we're going to have to ask you to stand up. And we're going to ask you to go walk, go around this side, all the, line up that way. So then when you're done, you can just walk out that way. Am I doing it wrong? Go around this way. Okay, I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> That's not what Posh said. People lining up this way? That's what I said. Yeah. Don't I did it right. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.